Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, the guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. Good day and good beverages to you. Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sinclair, and I am joined by my uh, very handsome and very intelligent guest, guest, host, co-host, Mr. Drew Garrison. You've been, while I, while I uh, decided to flatter you this time, I demoted you at the same time. Yeah, it's important to keep me in check. That's right. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing something a little bit different today. We're actually recording in the morning. Um, and what I love about this is that more often than not, just because of my job and the things that I have to do, when we're tasting barrels or thinking about new spirits to bring in or new wines to take on, it's always best to to try them first thing in the morning, like before you have your coffee, before all that. And it's also a proven fact that you can't drink all day unless you start in the morning. So here we are, <laughs> morning podcast, drinking in the morning, and it's going to be a, it's going to be another long day. But I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, one of one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast recently is that you know we've almost used it as a vehicle to just talk to people that we have a tremendous amount of respect for, that we admire in this industry, and that have contributed things to this industry that we just hope that maybe one day we'll have a quarter of the impact um, that they did. And and as you guys are all aware, my process of um, of booking, you know, the talent, if you will, is uh, I have a couple glasses of wine, couple shots of mezcal, or you know, a couple cocktails, and um, and then I just get that liquid courage and I put myself out there, you know, to be judged. And uh, and it's usually it's usually encouraged by Chris. Chris is like, hey, have a couple of drinks tonight, and ask this guy to be on the podcast. And um, and that's exactly how this went down. Uh, this was. This is something that we've been looking forward to for a long time. We're we're really happy to make it happen. And today's guest is the wine critic for this little paper out of uh, out of the biggest city in the world, the New York Times. He's uh, the inventor of the twenty five and under article, which was a really really cool publication where you got to go get some really delicious bites for under twenty five bucks. He's written tons of books, tons of articles. When it comes to wine. This is the guy that you want to talk talk to, talk about. And our guest today is Eric Asimov from the New York Times. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to have you and that you're even willing to be here. Like this is this is great. Why don't you um, tell tell the people a little bit about yourself? And then also, if if you are sipping on anything, I know it's the afternoon for you. Um, <laughs> let us let us know or what people should be drinking. Um. Hey, I'm very happy to be here with you guys. Um, no, I haven't spent the day drinking, um, and I probably won't begin until this evening. Um, but yeah, I, I've been uh, I've been writing about wine for the Times now for for more than twenty years. I've been at the Times for um, God, it's I'll just say more than half my life, which is a scary thing. For me, um, I I was reviewing restaurants, as you mentioned, um, back in the 90s. So, you know, that just seems to me like yesterday, but it's a long time ago. Oh, it's, it's great, man. I mean, and again, it's, 
it's one of those things like you've actually, you know, been a contributor to this podcast multiple times uh, because we use a lot of the things that you've written about over the past couple of years as our talking points. And so now for us, you know, this is like, oh my gosh, like we're going directly to the source. We're going to be able to have these direct conversations we're really excited about. Um, it's just, it's just amazing for us. Well, you, you couldn't say something more flattering to me. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> Good. Well, so Chris, as I mentioned before, like, you know, you were, you really wanted to get Eric on here. And then not only that, but you know, the, the, the woman behind the scenes, Jen, your wife was like, if you guys get him, you need to really get your stuff together. Like Drew needs to fix his internet. Like we need to make <laughs> sure that we have a soundboard. <laughs> yeah. Eric, we're not kidding. That was like, she hasn't commented on any guest until you. And she was like, get it together guys, because this cannot happen when you have Eric on the podcast. And we were kind of like, um, okay. So I'm very happy if I can contribute to the professionalization <laughs> of the podcast. My, uh, 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 my, uh, Wife is industry, um, uh, but not quite as like headstrong into it as as Drew and I are. Um, but that being said, Eric, like you are a household name uh, here in this house. My my mother in law uh, is a subscriber to the New York Times, like the the hard paper, and she brings me your articles every week. Uh, so we've got like a stack of them uh, sitting sitting next to the next to the uh, the 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 couch on our, on our table. Uh, so my wife was very, um, a, uh, adamant that we try to get you. It was her idea. Uh, I didn't think we were cool enough, but thank you for blessing us. And, uh, and then, uh, also, um, I don't remember where I was going. I'm flabbergasted. I'm I don't know, excited. but I'm, uh, it, it's good that you have all that fish wrapper. You never know when you need it. <laughs> that's That's right. <laughs> So, so Eric, you know, I, I mean, obviously you're working for, you know, one of the most influential papers in the world, right? And you have this forum that you're able to reach, you know, quite a few people. And then, you know, and obviously through, uh, you know, I think New York Times is one of the, one of the few papers that's actually done a good job of, of rolling with the innovation as well, you know, whether it be through something um, like the daily or any of the other podcasts that have come out of that or your digital, you know, content and stuff, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, your writing and, and things like that and the, the stuff that you're talking about, do you ever feel like there's a, there's an extra level of responsibility when it comes to like knowing the platform that you have and the influence that you have when it comes to this industry? Um, I think it's, it's internalized, um, you know, ha having been in the been writing an opinion column essentially for for 30 years now, you know, you you realize that flippant criticisms or or, you know, self-serving uh, sorts of, of, of uh, opinions can really affect people's businesses and. I think, you know, before you you have that responsibility, you have to really realize that you can't learn on the job, essentially, because it, it affects real people. So you have to be really um, careful and considered in in what you're saying and have have good reasons for it. Um, I don't. It's not something that I feel as a burden. Um, it's just something that 
that goes with the territory of of working for the times. Um, you know, at the same time, it, it's not it, it's not only negative. Um, you know, you can really uh, help people by by saying the right words. You know. Um, you can bring attention to to worthy projects and and interesting people, and I think I spend um, you know a lot more time thinking about what readers will will find interesting or helpful, useful, provocative, inspiring. Um, you know that's that's really um, what what motivates me. Um, but if you have to be critical, if it's necessary, you know, you just have to make sure that you can back it up because in, in the end, you're not serving the, the subjects of, of, of your writing. You're serving readers and you have to give them good information. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that you really nailed it. I mean, there's, yeah, sure. There's that responsibility and then the negativity, but like, yeah, I'm sure there's been more than one occasion where, something you've written has, you know, basically rocket strapped, you know, uh, a wine or a project or something like that. Just that exposure to let people know it's like, Hey, by the way, this is super cool. You guys should check this out. And, you know, using that platform, that's, um, that's really great. And I also think that, you you know, I think it's also being a good journalist. I mean, you, you know, you're, you can't be, um, egocentric about it. Um, I think, you know, the U.S. has maybe a different journalistic culture than a place like uh, the U.K., where I've seen, you know, restaurant reviews that just take, you know, the most fiendish pleasure in, in, in driving people into the ground. And, and, and it's true, you can always um, draw more eyes with, with something that's kind of supremely entertainingly negative. But... Um, you know, I, it's just, it's more, it's just seems more self-serving than, um, in the interests of, of readership. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so over, over the past two years, I mean, obviously we've, we've both been, you know, experiencing lockdowns. Actually our, probably our two States have had the most extreme levels of lockdowns and, and things like that. And, um, you know, you do a lot of writing, of course, about California wine, but, um, you know, kind of wine all over the world have the like the travel restrictions made your job harder or is it made you just kind of have to adapt i mean what are some of the things that you've taken out of the last few years in terms of you know t- being a journalist in the wine world where you're kind of forced to stay you know in in your place like not being able to go anywhere um well yeah you're you're definitely forced to adapt and um i also you know that's that's kind of a, a characteristic uh, of any journalist. You have to be adaptable. And if that means, you know, writing on a subway, writing on a plane, writing in a car seat, um, in a coffee shop, where wherever you have to do it, you do it. And if it means sitting at your desk in New York City for, for two years instead of traveling as you're used to, well, you do that. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, I, I mean, I've, I've missed, uh, a bunch of trips that I had planned to take and, you know, there's really no substitute for, um, 
you know, soaking in the atmosphere of, of a place and a culture, especially when you're writing about wine, which is so um, expressive of, of these qualities, good wines anyway. Um, so, you know, I definitely miss that. Um, and I hope that this year I'll be able to resume traveling. Um, at least I have plans to. I did get out to California once last summer when, you know, it looked like we were kind of past things before Delta arrived. But yeah, um, I mean, it's a different kind of thing when you're just tasting wines in your apartment rather than walking the vineyards, uh, talking directly to the people who are farming and making the wines and kind of breathing in the, the atmosphere. Um, and I, I definitely miss that. So, so on this podcast, we have this term uh, that Drew and I uh, will will use sort of interchangeably, both as a positive and a negative. And it's uh, we, we like calling it um, getting wineried. And that's that's <laughs> when you you go to a place and you experience something. And sometimes it's not quite the same when you get at home, or versus it's like that's what gets you to fall in love with with something is because you've you. You've been fully immersed yourself and engaged in in that um, you know, wellspring knowledge. How how has the last two years not um, you know that that's got to have affected your writing in in some way? Not being able to like make it to those wellsprings. Yeah, um, and you know I know exactly what you mean by that that term. I think it's you know it's the oldest marketing strategy for for wineries, not just. Not just with writers, I mean with consumers. If they, if you can get them to visit your tasting room, they're in a sense, um, you know, they they've bought in to to you and your culture, and they now possess you in some way. And um, you know, that's how you you get return cust- customers because now you know the people, now you know the place. Um, I I would like to think that I don't fall prey to that having been to a, enough places where you know I'm I, I don't really feel susceptible to the um, to the marketing strategy and I always kind of avoid those um, moments where you know we're gonna do a, a, a blind tasting between our um, you know, our San Luis Obispo Pinot Noir and uh, DRC in Burgundy. And, and, you know, those are, those are always um, transparently self-serving and, and um, best to, to avoid taking part in. But, you know, at the same time, when you, when you can see a place and you, you, you see how people operate, you can, you know what is what is a uh, a vineyard look like? What does it uh, smell like? Are there animals there? Uh, does it have life and energy to it? What is the cellar like? Um, you know, I, I'm I guess I'm I'm much more interested in just the um, impressionistic moments and you know where do your barrels come from and and uh, that sort of of um, textbook granular textbook stuff and you know i as a result of of sitting here at my desk um solely for the last two years there's a a lot less kind of atmospheric writing um 
and and probably a lot less uh, understanding on my part of of uh, you know at, at what places are like culturally um, because you know it's it's one thing to if you're just returning, well, I'm going to make my swing through Napa because I've done it for the last 20 years. That's, that's one thing, but it's, it's completely different when you go to a new place. I, like I had planned to go to, um, Northern Greece in, um, 2020 and I'd never been there before. And I had expected to really learn a lot about, uh, the area and the people, um, taste the food, um, you know, get to know the wines a little bit more intimately. I had been scheduled to go to South Africa just this past January, um, just about the time that uh, Omicron arrived from South Africa. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, I hope that I'll be able to make these trips uh, because they really are learning experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's one thing that we've talked about. We've, you know, I think anybody in this industry, you've had a lot of trips canceled in the last two years, and it was, a, it's been a major bummer. Um, before we move on to our articles, uh, one I, of the I things- want to say one last thing about that because, uh, it, you know, um, I'll be a little bit self-serving here, but it's it's a privilege for me to to work at a place like the New York Times where. Um, our rule is that we pay for, for all of these trips. So I'm not going on a press junket. I'm not, uh, coming at the, to be the guest of the, um, you know, the, the regional marketing, uh, association. So, you know, it's just, uh, the times fortunately has the resources to, to stay independent in that way. And I recognize that, um, you know, very few wine writers, are, are privileged to have that uh, position or those resources behind them. So um, I, you know, I, I'm, I always feel um, humble about, about this and, and grateful to be working at a place like the times. No, I think it comes across in your writing too. Like it's, um, it's pretty evident that it's like, there's a lot of balance, there's nuance throughout it. And you know, my next question for you, and this is something that you've actually, you've done various articles over the years in, in regards to this, but, you know, just to kind of, um, I guess, distill it down a little bit, you know, more often than not, we get a lot of questions about, you know, it's like, hey, when I go to a restaurant, you know, and somebody hands me a wine list, and I still feel like this at this point in my career too, where it's like, you know, I get handed a wine list and you're kind of like, oh my, oh my God, there's 80 wines on, on this list. Like, how is anybody supposed to decipher this? And, you know, if you could, if you could share with our listeners, like, you know, some of the things maybe to look out for, or like when you, when you are at a nice restaurant, you want to get yourself something that is going to be decent without, you know, I mean, they don't want to drop $200 on a bottle of wine, but they want to have a nice bottle of wine. You know, what are, what are some of your kind of go-tos or tips or countries that maybe you kind of like, Hey, this is usually can't miss at this price point from this place. Here you go. Um, well, you know, my basic tip is that if if a restaurant has a wine list that's large enough to be confusing, um, <laughs> it most likely will have a, a wine professional, a sommelier or wine director or somebody there who is knowledgeable about the list. And 
I mean, I do this all the time. I'm, I don't always know um, every wine on a list and I may, I may be able to narrow it down. I may know a list well enough that I can narrow it down to a, a handful, handful, but uh, I almost always will ask the sommelier for, um, for advice. And part of that is knowing my budget, which I'm, um, you know, I recognize can be uh, awkward for for people to to share um, in certain circumstances, but but it's important. Um, but it's you know I I I see though that a lot of people are reluctant to ask for help because they think that it's somehow demeaning or they feel that they're going to be taken advantage of somehow. And, um, you know, I, I think that stereotype of the upselling sommelier, it's not that it doesn't happen, but it really is a, a baseless stereotype these days where restaurants are most interested in developing repeat customers and are not going to, uh, want to leave you feeling as if you've been exploited somehow or, or, or taken advantage of. They want you to be happy and they want to direct you um, toward a wine that will make you happy. So it, you know, it helps to know what you're going to eat. Sometimes you can just put your hands in, in yourself in the hands of a sommelier. You know, I want to spend um, $80 at the most. What do you think will, will go well? well I'm, I'm having the chicken. My wife's having the fish. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to 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 answer your question in in terms of uh, you know uh, in winning devices. You know, always order from Italy or always get the third cheapest wine. I don't. I I think that's all. <laughs> you know, that's that's the, those are the kind of uh, tricks that that um, no. I- you know, I, I, sell sometimes, but they also make people really cynical about wine. Yeah, no, I think I think what you're you're saying is is totally right. I mean, that's usually the the route that I go. It's like you know, I I try to give you know a budget. Let's say like you know one twenty one twenty five to one fifty. Like that's what range I want to stay in. Yeah, you're right. Like this is what I'm ordering. You go be the expert and and kind of let me know. It's like you know, hopefully that person was part of cultivating that list and. Um, you know, they're also familiar with the menu and, and stuff like that. Um, I know that was going to be my, I said that was gonna be my last question, but I do have one more and, you know, through, you know, throughout your years of doing this, like, is there one, you know, misconception that always comes to you that you wish kind of people would be like, Hey, this is not the case for wine. Like I hear this all the time. That's not the case. I just want to put this to bed right now. Or like one thing that you wish more of, you know, your everyday drinkers knew about the wine industry? Yeah. Um, well, you know, this is really about wine rather than the industry. And it's, it, and it, it, it's probably um, obvious, but wine is, is just a beverage. It's just, a, it's a very um, easygoing, pleasurable beverage that um, by virtue of wine culture in the United States has become this in, intimidating, anxiety-ridden um, object that people 
either feel they're they're unable to appreciate because you have to have some sort of special training or special physical equipment to get it, or um, just give up because there's there's too much to know. And really, wine is just a a it 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 can be felt. It's an uh, it's an emotional beverage before before it's an academic beverage, and if it's something that um, that feels good, and you want to feel even better about it, then it helps to um, to learn more, to dive into it. But you don't need any of that simply to enjoy it. And I guess I, I w- would say that it's you know it's not wine itself; it's all of the human constructs about wine um, aimed at at putting it on a pedestal. Um, you know, linking it uh, uh, somehow to to um, rationality and academics and, and uh, you know, a world of knowledge that you have to know merely to appreciate it. Uh, it's all it's bullshit. It's just, a, you know, it's it's a good drink. And I think that, um, you know, one one of the great benefits of the natural wine movement is just kind of getting rid of all this uh, pedestal nonsense, getting rid of the, the uh, you know, we don't, we don't need the three-piece suit. We don't need the, the marketing. We're going to uh, just hang out in our, in, our, um, in our jeans in this really comfortable bar with some good food and enjoy this wine. Why are we enjoying it? Because it's good and, that's, and it's fun and that's all you need. That's awesome. I love the fact that, you know, the wine crate for New York Times is to everybody to chill out on, you know, holding wine on a pedestal. That's my favorite thing in the entire world. That's I mean, great. That, I you know, it. if <laughs> I mean, who's going to do it but us at the Times? <laughs> uh, Chris, did you have any questions for Eric before we get into the articles? Uh, you know what? I, I've got a plethora, but um, uh, I'm realizing that a lot of them are going to come up uh, through conversation with uh, with both of these uh, uh, pieces of conversation. So I'm just going to let it ride until we get there. All right. Well, then I think it's time for our opinion um, on stories and news from reputable sources. Well, I kind of butchered that one. Not a smooth transition. Um, so the first thing we want to talk about is... Chris, you know, your said, wife is going to be annoyed. <laughs> I mean, that's just par for the course, really. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, we live to drive Jen. She knew what this was. That's all right. <laughs> um, so, the, so the first article I sent you guys was uh, which is basically an economic forecast for wine in 2022. And uh, there was this uh, conference, a virtual conference, where they talked about the different things and what the wine industry is facing this coming year. Um, talking about the world, you know, the, the world is drifting back towards the, the pre-pandemic numbers. Um, there's also, you know, dealing with the premiumization of products and whether or not that's going to apply to wine. And then there's the different changes on a legal level with so much more direct to consumer shipping, which we've talked about on this podcast numerous times before. And and Eric, you actually just wrote an article talking about how there has been this return to pre-pandemic numbers, but not necessarily for wine. And a big driver for that is because millennials are not 
drinking wine um, at the same rate as potentially their parents, grandparents, and so on were going. So as you look at the forecast for 2022 and thinking about some of the things in this, in this article, I mean, Eric, what do you see for this year for wine? Like what are the trends that are emerging and you know, what's kind of your feelings towards it? Well, um, first let's assume that the um, pandemic doesn't have any more tricks for us. And, um, you know, I, I think it's wine is like pretty much every field right now where it's, it's kind of bedeviled by the supply chain issues. Um, you know, it goes beyond that. Uh, uh, there are all kinds of um, there's trouble getting glass for bottles right now with a lot of uh, which, you know, directly impacts on uh, on on uh, filling filling bottles for, for wineries. Um, you know, so there are a lot of like structural, structural issues that have um, nothing to do with that article that, that I wrote about uh, millennials. But um, let me see if I can answer this question in a more coherent way. <laughs> yeah, wine is facing a lot of problem, a lot of challenges that other businesses are, are facing as well. And um, maybe even more so because of the impact of, of climate change, the, um, the global nature of, of the wine business. And, um, you know, I, I think as things straighten out for, for commerce in general, things will straighten out for wine as well which leaves the, the usual pre-pandemic um, problems of climate change and of uh, baby boomers retiring and drinking less, baby boomers who are the prime market, have been the prime market for wine, and millennials not taking up the slack. So yeah, there are problems. And, and another big problem that uh, I think has arrived because of the pandemic is the um, uh, a further consolidation in in the industry, because if if things become very economically challenging, particularly for fall for for small producers, um, you know the big producers are going to have the resources to to withstand whatever the the economic burdens are and come out of this situation uh, a lot healthier than than small producers yeah uh, it's I, I definitely i mean again so much is so much is just dependent on what happens with covid you know like does it continue to subside or you know does does it come back um so chris i want to take this to you and you know again they're you know we're kind of combining um you know, di- different stories into this one, but have you seen that in the shop where people are gravitating more towards spirits and less towards wine? I mean, you have a pretty unique shop in terms of what's available in Sacramento um, compared to a lot of other places. So, I mean, what has the buying trends look like from your perspective? Oh man. Um, okay. So from a purely numbers perspective, uh, spirits are definitely up, but that's also the focus of, of sort of where we came into this industry or, or at least into this market with our concept, right? We wanted to have 
uh, a bottle shop that was really focused in on uh, spirits and booze that you couldn't find at the grocery store um, that bartenders were looking for, but they couldn't find because that's that's my point of view as well, right? Like that's that's the whole point of why we started Good Bottle is because it do- didn't exist. So as a bartender who is always looking for these things, I wanted to come in and offer the solution to that. That being said, wine was always a focus for me on a, on a very personal and emotional level. I really wanted our wine numbers to be extensive enough um, to support and justify having, having an interesting selection. And it does that. I mean, if you look generically at our numbers, you have whiskey is, is our top selling um, category. And then generically wine is just under that. And then agave is under that. So spirits generically as a whole outsell wine generically, but we, it still is selling a really decent volume uh, inside the shop. Now the question is like, what are people buying from my store? People aren't buying Napa caps. They're not buying Sonoma, right? Like what we're finding people are buying is going to be organic wines, natural wines. Uh, People are looking at rosés. Uh, you know, the rosé category is just, it's explosive. Um, and we're finding people spending between, you know, 14 to $30 on a regular basis. We're not finding people really jumping up to the $50 mark um, on a, on quite a regular basis. I mean, it exists and people come in and they're looking for something nice to share for dinner. They're looking for a nice gift. And so they're looking for something that's a, that's a little bit closer to that. Uh, to that price point, but they're not, they're not going there just for their own, uh, their own enjoyment. You know, one of the problems is when people just speak about the wine industry as if it's one thing, and then you end up um, lumping together the kind of, you know, the two buck Chuck and, and barefoots with um, uh Napa cabs, big Napa cabs, and, you know, all of the, the small producers from around the world who are, are, are trying to, uh, farm organically and, and make, uh, honest representations of whatever they, um, uh, whatever their grapes and places give them. And, you know, it's, it's really hard, uh, for me to uh, to think of just plain wine, because so much of the audience for wine in this country, at least, are you know people who are not actually interested in the subject of wine. They're mostly interested in an inoffensive alcohol delivery system that's <laughs> relatively affordable and and you know, that that's pleasant for them. Um, and that's not really the audience I write for either, you know, um, and that probably makes up the majority of wine drinkers. It's, it's really the, um, the, the smaller minority that buys all kinds of different wines. It's not just wed to a brand you know, the way people used to smoke cigarettes or, or this, is, this is my brand of wine. This is what I drink. 
uh, people who are 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 curious and and um, interested in what wine has to offer, and and my guess is that that's the area where um, younger people who are right now more interested in in cocktails or or craft beers uh, will gravitate to. They don't want to buy just uh, brand names. So, yeah. so, so I'm curious. Um, well, if, if we're going back to the story, we're talking about the sort of the economic struggles of the wine category, uh, and I think primarily this is, you know, this is taking uh, at least this, this article right is taking a, a perspective that seems to be a little bit more focused on California wine industry than 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 uh, not. I'm curious what your answer would be then to, you know, these winemakers. Is it, is it a PR thing? You know, is it, is it a uh, got milk uh, uh, suggestion as, as you wrote or, or is it culturally? Do, do we have to, I don't know what the opposite of premiumization would be and how, how that would look like on, on a wine level. How do, how do wine, producers start interacting with that group of people who want something that's inoffensive and delicious and offers a, a great experience. Um, but then as millennials, we know spend, you know, they talk with their, with their uh, purse strings, you know, they're buying things that are uh, speaking to them either through how it's made, who's making it um, and the experience that they get from it. What, what, do we have to move away from premiumization or we, the, the wine industry or, or is there a third column here that we're not, we're not seeing? Well, let's, um, you know, premiumization is a, a, an ugly word for, that the industry uses for people who are um, spending a little more for wine. So instead of spending $8 for a bottle, they've moved up to what, you know, $13 or $15. And this isn't strictly a question of of inflation or higher costs. It's a, um, I think, a, a decision that you're not going to settle for something that is mass produced, um, done with, uh, by, uh, economy of scales. Um, uh, but instead you want something that's more, um, a, a product of craftsmanship. And I think that, that, uh, certainly the American wine industry has not paid enough attention to um, inexpensive wine. And now I'm not using industry terms. I'm just, I'm using consumer terms, Mod- moderately priced wines, by which I mean $20 and, and under and, and offering um, uh, diversity in this segment, uh, diversity of grapes, diversity of styles, wines made with craftsmanship, they've sort of um, consigned, for the most part, this area to um, either mass-produced um, wines without 
personality or to knockoffs of of more expensive wines. So if people decide that that Napa Valley Cabernet is the best that America has to offer and and uh, uh, Sonoma Chardonnay, well, we're going to make cheaper versions of those from the Central Valley or or you know from wherever that we can charge ten dollars for. Um, and we're going to uh, we're going to make it taste expensive by using oak chips or mm. other sort of uh, uh, you know manipulative processes, and you know that's really where the American wine industry has been at, and you know that's why after Sideways they uh, you know grafted over the the Merlot to Pinot Noir. It's kind of uh, you know following whatever the fad is in, in trying to capitalize on, on what's popular rather than um, uh, focusing on, on wine as, as a cultural expression, which I think is really where its future is going to be because wine, wine can do something that most beverages can't um, uh, with the exception of certain uh, whiskeys, you know, it's, it, it can express the the sense of place. Uh, it can express uh, uh, the culture of, of a place, and it's a lot easier to do that in in uh, the old world and a lot less expensive. I think there's a younger generation of American winemakers who are very conscious of this, grew up with these sorts of, of wines, and want to um, make American versions of them, and and have been doing a, a wonderful job. Uh, but it's not as easy to operate in the U.S. and certainly in California um, at, at a less expensive rate. The, the cost of doing business is just higher. Yeah. So, you know, obviously our listeners at home can hear the uh, hear the terroir of Manhattan right now in the background <laughs> of that of that conversation. Um, Indeed. You know, I, I think it's I think that's such a uh, such a great observation on the wine industry as in terms of it being a little bit more reactionary as a, as opposed to being innovative. Um, but to come back to your point that you made earlier, kind of about like the natural wine movement and some of these newer winemakers where there's this level of transparency that we've never seen before um, that is, is really great. I think that's what a lot of younger drinkers want. It's kind of like this, um, you know, combination of farm to fork or farm to glass, you know, plus transparency and, you know, people being a little bit more interested in experiences rather than, you know, things. It's kind of, um, I think a lot of those, those types of wines speak to it. And, and we talked a little bit about this on, on last week's episode as well. It's like, you know, how do you, how do you convey these messages in a grocery store where most of, where a lot of wine is purchased, right? And like, and can you convince a younger generation, you know, to do that? Or is it kind of a lost cause? Like there's nothing that you can really do to change the grocery store experience, you know, for these people. And it's like, and if you really want to go get something that's truly special or unique, you need to go to like a focused wine shop. I mean, what do you think of that? I, I, I think that's true. Um, you know, uh, most grocery stores are buying units of wine the way they buy units of toilet paper or, or, you know, cans of peas. And I think the, uh, the head buyer for Costco, who is one of the most powerful uh, 
people in in wine because they buy such a large volume for for their stores once said exactly that you know to me wine is just a unit and uh and, and we count sales and you know that's fine i think a lot of people um are happy with what they get at at supermarkets and you know that's that's the segment of the population that doesn't really want to go deeper into wine beyond just getting a buzz, an enjoyable buzz, which is fine. Um, For people who are going to be really curious about wine, the way they are about spirits, um, yeah, the best thing they can do is shop at a place that cares about wine. Um, and, and sees it for something else besides just sales units that that loves what it sells. And, you know, I, I think that um, younger people who are into spirits, they're not buying like the cheapest bottle on the bottom shelf. They're they're buying something that they think is good, that they um they can see the the craft in. Um, otherwise, you know, you wouldn't have the spirits market exploding with all of these small distilleries or um, larger uh, producers offering uh, bottles that look like they came from small distilleries. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, the, the same is, is true for wine. You're not going to uh, – premiumization doesn't mean that Barefoot just charges more for the same stuff. It means that people are looking for, for something better. Eric, I've got a, sort of a 90-degree question here. You, you, have, you have two children, right? You, you, uh, you, yes. I believe you've, you've mentioned before in, in some of your writings that you, ha- you are the, uh, the father of uh, some millennials yourself. Two, right? two millennials. Two millennials. Yes. Are they are they wine consumers or are they spirit consumers? What does that like dinner table conversation look like uh, within your household? Um, they're both. Although you know when I mean they're both old enough to be on their own, and um, you know one lives here in New York City and one lives in the UK. Um, but yeah, when we get together, we drink wine, um, and they love wine. Um, but they also love spirits and they, they like beer and, you know, they're, they're curious about all, all kinds of things. And, um, you know, I think, uh, and certainly their friends probably are, are more interested in, um, spirits and cocktails than they are in wine because the, the, uh, barrier of entry is, is lower. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot. If you go to a restaurant, you can get like a great cocktail for about the same price as a mediocre glass of wine. You can get a, a world-class beer for, you know, or a mediocre glass of wine. Uh, I, if I'm on an airplane and, you know, they're, they're serving those, those little bottles of, of wine that come from wherever, I'll, I'd rather have a craft beer. Um, or I'd rather have a Budweiser for that matter. Um, you know, mediocre beer to me is better than mediocre 
wine. Um, and so it's funny that you say that because there was an article that was talking about Delta or Delta or United um, switching their wine offerings to wine in a can. And um, I was just like, I was like, oh, I wonder if this would be like an interesting article. Like, would he have an opinion, you know, on this? And then here you go. You're bringing up, you know, airplane wine. Like, I, oh, we well, missed our opportunity. Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> I have nothing against wine in a can. You know, if you put good wine in a can, it's a great thing. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's one of the categories that admittedly I just have had a really tough time with, you know, whether it be RTDs or wine in a can. And, and I know for a fact that Chris sells some really, really good ones. I, I, I know that and I just I still have really struggled to embrace it. Like, I don't know if it in as weird as this is going to sound like I don't know if it ends up being a texture thing that it's just kind of like there shouldn't be metal intermixing with my cocktail and or wine like it feels weird that i or that like something that i've been so used to doing for 30 plus years of it being either like a soda or a beer is now something that i've always associated in a different way i don't know i'm trying to come around on it and i i haven't gotten there yet but you know well i mean you know it depends on the situation if you're if you're sitting at home i i don't really see a reason you know, to open a can of wine, yeah. um, you know, if you're, if you're hiking somewhere, <laughs> it might make a lot more sense. If you're, you know, sitting at a swimming hole, um, you know, you can, you can truck in and truck out that, that can of wine. It's a lot lighter. And, you know, that's actually something uh, because of climate change that P, that the wine industry is really going to have to consider whether, um, you know, disposable glass bottles really make any sense anymore. Uh, People are used to them, um, but, you know, sometimes we have to break old habits and and, um, begin new ones. It's, uh, disposable bottles are are so wasteful. Um, Shipping wines halfway around the world in bottles is pretty wasteful. you know, there's there there are going to have to be some some new systems, and and in some ways, um, you know, it's it's worth looking to the way wine used to be shipped in in larger containers, and uh, if it was bottled at all, it was bottled close to the the point of sale. Um, maybe that makes more sense, and maybe we should be looking at that, or at least returnable bottles something different. Yeah. I remember early on when we started this podcast a few years ago, one of the first stories that we covered was, and I'm going to be very vague on the details here because this was a long time ago, but it was talking about this company in Florida who was, who was doing a rosé and they were, they had basically, they were shipping it over in bulk and it was like, uh, it was Seabin's of basically like the biggest box wine you've ever seen in your life. Right. But that was the way that they were able to keep, you know, keep the cost down. And, you know, and at the time, of course, you know, you're making jokes about uh, like, you know, slapping the bag and stuff like that to, to drink before you drink your wine. Um, but yeah, maybe just because of how things have gone and where we're at, I mean, you know, we need to be flexible. You need to, um, you know, not poo-poo certain things like screw tops and different stuff like that. Like the, the industry, maybe it's changing. And, and I'll start, I'm going to start embracing more. I, I am going on more hikes recently. So I'm going to put the can theory 
on the hike to a test and I'll, I'll report back to you and see, see if it made more <laughs> sense on a trail. So, well, uh, you know, to, to your point, Drew, that, that story I remember it uh, had to do with uh, tariffs and importing costs. Right. And so if it's good enough, it's, if it's good enough of a solution to deal on a monetary level, like it, it's got to be good enough to deal with on an environmental level, right? Like we have to start, we as a society and as producers and as consumers and as uh, retailers myself uh, have to start looking at those solutions um, because it, they affect all of us. You know, it's not just a, it's not just a singular um, experience happening in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered this. It's time to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart. Next. Yo. Uh. Okay. So, Eric, one of the things that we talk about so much on this show is celebrity-endorsed spirits and how much they drive me up a wall, especially when it comes to things like agave. Um, so with that said, I came across this story, and it is um, Martha Stewart, and 19 Crimes out of Australia are launching their own, are launching their wine, and it's called Martha's Shard. My uh, favorite favorite line from this is, uh, you know, her saying, "The world doesn't didn't need just another Chardonnay, so I created one that is clean, crisp, and flavorful without being too heavy or oaky." So, I don't know how you feel about celebrity endorsed wines or anything like that, but. Just let us have it. What are your thoughts on projects like these? Go nuts. I mean, you can just be completely in support. I don't know. Um, but when you see things like this pop up, you know, what are your thoughts? Is it an eye roll? Is it just kind of here we go? Or, you know, what what what's the process like for you when you see these types of projects come out? Well, I mean, you can imagine how often they get pitched to me. Um, but I mean, I really have zero interest in, in celebrity wine. I mean, who, who cares, you know, I mean, I mean, why, you know, it's a, I mean, 19 crimes is 19 crimes and that's exactly the kind of wine that I, I don't care about. So, you know, Martha's imprimatur is not going to make it better. Although a lot of people think it will, um, you know, that said, uh, I, I have nothing against celebrities who are serious about the business, who want to go in into wine, um, not just to to put their name on a label, but because, um, you know, they're it's something that's fascinating to them. Uh, Tom Seaver made a really good wine. Um, you know, I, I haven't quite followed this as closely as I might have, but uh, Mary J. Blige put her name on some really, you know, interesting skin contact wines that, um, you know, went beyond just, just sort of adding your name to it. Um, I'm, I'm told that, that Dwayne Wade is super serious about wine, but you know, it's, it's just not enough to, to, to put your name on it. If you really care about it, um, why not just be in the background and, uh, you know, start a wine without your name on it or, uh, I mean, that's probably too much to ask, but that's, I mean, I, I think there are two, two parts, there's two parts of the same coin, right? Which is, uh, does your name help sell the, sell the product? Which clearly the celebrity does, uh, and especially in terms of 
you know, Martha Stewart. So why not, why not use something that's already intrinsic in the value of you being an owner? I can see that argument. Uh, but then on the other side, why, you know, if the point is, is that you actually care about this thing, why not just care about the thing uh, and, and let some of that juice, let some of that product start, start working for itself as opposed to putting your name behind it. Um, someone who I, I think who's like threaded this needle pretty well um, is William H. Macy in his uh, ownership of Woody Creek distillery out of Colorado. Um, not a lot of people know that he's an, he's an owner yet. If you look at their um, social media, he's, he's all over it, um, but it's not, they really focus in on the distiller uh, and they, they don't put it out there. Like he's not on the label, you know, so on and so forth. You know, he's just, he's just a, there's their spokesperson. Um, so I think that he's threaded the needle pretty well on that. I, I think the, the part I drew that drew my eyes into this article was uh, I created the wine, which clearly Martha Stewart did not create this fucking wine. Did not. No, <laughs> you know, she was not in that vineyard. She was not in that barrel room. You know, they sent her samples and her people received it and put it in a glass for her. And she tasted it and said, yes, no, maybe, 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 maybe. (laughs) but I think your point drew is, is salient. I mean, she created, she didn't, she knows that the world doesn't need another Chardonnay. So she created another Chardonnay. I just, I just sat there when I, when I read that and I just was, I was like, is this right? Did they, I mean, did, did they misquote her? You know? And it was, uh, gosh, it was, I mean, but here, it, it, well, here's another example. Uh, Cameron Diaz with her clean wine. Um, you know, well, I haven't heard what, of that one. No, uh, no. that was a, uh, that was a big thing in wine and it's uh, and it's supposedly an, an upcoming uh, marketing tool where people are, 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 are want healthy wines, clean wines. And uh, she and a, a, a businesswoman created a brand that was really uh, uh, sold a lot of wine in in 2020 and 2021. But their marketing of it gave the impression that they were doing something that was completely new and different. And, you know, the, the idea that uh, there weren't any number of, of good wines that were not, uh, you know, manipulated or uh, adulterated in some way uh, was just ridiculous and cynical. And it's not that, that she and her partners were selling bad wines, but they were, they were, they concocted, um, you know, misleading rationale for their brand in the first place. So it looks like it's called Aveline or Avalon. Yes. Yes. Um, I think, I think that's, that that's something that we see pretty often in the spirits world, right? Is that you have these celebrities come in and kind of like, you know, co-op this, this history or, or maybe they, you know, they, they, pretend like they're the ones that figured this out. I, I remember, yes. remember when, um, you know, the, the Casamigos launched their Mezcal 
and I mean, and obviously Casamigos is so problematic for so many different reasons. But um, in the initial article, Randy Gerber is quoted as saying, we scoured Mexico to find this mezcal and then we helped the family perfect it. And it was just like, <laughs> like, like what? Like, what are you talking about? And the and great I, and white I, hope. Yeah, yes. no kidding, no yeah. kidding, right? And that's, I mean, in 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 most of most of my vitriol is really reserved for the agave and the rum world because these are two worlds that you have seen a lot of that white savior complex, you know, play out the most. And I think for myself, um, I've kind of given a pass to you know, like whiskeys and then, and even wines, because like these are annual crops that it's not necessarily have the same maturation time period as, or, or have the economic factors that, that some of these other ones have. So I think it's, you know, when you do have someone like a Cameron Diaz come out here and try to have like this revisionist history on, on what they're actually contributing to the, um, to the market. Like, it's just kind of, I mean, that, that stuff like that irritates me, you know, Martha Stewart, bringing another Chardonnay to the market despite not the market not needing one. I mean, whatever. It, well, know, it's it, not quite as bad as the, the cultural appropriation that goes along with, uh, you know, moving into the agave world. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, and it's and it's it's so bad, uh, you know, across across the table. And it's it's really one, you know, that we kind of have like both Chris and I have like, you know, zero tolerance for, I mean, we even have right now we have a shirt on, you know, on our Etsy. That's like the hundred percent celebrity agave free shirt, you know, and it's, it's just stuff that, you know, that, that drives me nuts. And, and I'm, I'm curious. I mean, do you, I think the, I think the Cameron Diaz stories is definitely damaging, but like overall, I mean, is it, do you see that there are any benefits in, in celebrities entering this world or do you kind of look at it like, you know, I guess varying levels of it, but is it, is it more so damaging or is it helpful for the industry? Is it kind of whatever? Oh, I I don't think it's, uh, it, it goes either way, really. I mean, you know, I guess most, um, you know, there are celebrity endorsements in every area. Um, and, you know, there are, we live, um, you know, in a world that uh, of people who care what what celebrities do. Um, you know, uh, Bob Dylan is one of my heroes and he's he's got his own whiskey brand right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the Heaven's Door. Heaven Door's right. whiskey. Yeah. I mean, they say he uh, samples <laughs> every batch and, mm. um, you know, who knows? And, and I mean, I don't really begrudge something like that. His, you know, his, uh, you know, the, the level of, of uh, salesmanship there and uh, is not... Uh, horrible and uh, you know my impression is that they're trying to do something that's of good quality um so yeah i mean i don't really think about it one way or the other uh i i can't it's not often when it's damaging what's what's really 
more damaging are are billionaires who who go into the wine business and and drive up uh, land values and prices for everybody else. Oh, that I mean, it's a whole other you know. conversation. Wow, yeah, it's <laughs> a whole other conversation. I mean, uh, but you know, yeah. I think that you know, celebrities are are, are sort of a minor irritant by comparison. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. Chris, do you have any? Uh, do you have any final thoughts on Martha Stewart's uh, entry into the wine world? I just find it so fascinating that her celebrity has just like tripled since she got in trouble for doing something extra shitty. You know, she, you know, her, her white collar crime, she's been able to turn into something that has made her millions of dollars uh, for, even though she, she, her, you know, defrauding uh, got thrown out of court. She uh, was it. It was insider trading. It was wasn't insider it? trading. Yeah, and her her defrauding was it was uh, uh, ultimately dropped from that. But she she was held accountable for for lying to uh, to the authorities and for uh, uh, not being helpful when they were trying to investigate her. Yeah, I you know one one of the things that that kind of stood out to me and just as the final thought is, you know, she, in, in the article, it, it references, you know, uh, her relationship with Snoop Dogg and the success that he's had with 19 crimes. And there is a picture of the bottle, right? And, you know, even though Martha it's got her does face have, on it, it's got her face on it. And it just, it just seems like there's this clash of branding that's taking place on this bottle. Whereas like, yeah, it's, it's this, pretty atrocious marketing. Yeah. Is like that going to diminish the value of all the other 19 <laughs> crimes wines? Well, I mean, I think there's, Great question. I, mean, I think there's, there's that theme that, that kind of goes with it. Right. Where if you're, if you're looking at like the Snoop Dogg bottle, you know, you know, he has a very stoic look on his face, right? Like it's, it, matches the rest of the 19 crimes kind of bottles and then and then here's martha smiling on the label and you're kind of like you're like what is happening with this brand like i just don't i can't put two and two together and it's like who wants this bottle in their collection like at least with the snoop one you're kind of like like whatever it's like you know that's kind of funny it's it's a little uh you know it's it's a little ridiculous like this is just a a, like this is an offensive bottle to look at like I just don't, I don't understand, you know, where where the appeal is, and it's like, but I do think it'll be interesting to see if if she does have that same kind of power because I agree with you, Chris. the 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 one eighty that she's done with public image and stuff over, you know, since having her, you know, conviction on the um on the insider trading, it's it's just, it's fascinating. It it's definitely. It's definitely that. So I guess, but you know, these are these are not marketed to wine lovers. They're they're marketed to Martha Stewart lovers or you know Snoop lovers, right? Which I think, I mean, and again, maybe I'm, and, and this is entirely possible. Uh, you know, if I'm just not savvy enough, you know, when it comes to pop culture, which is very very possible, it's like I feel like Snoop still translates like does does martha the same way like i don't know and, and i guess oh, she you know, absolutely maybe, does man you're but, you're, you're you know, missing like, it there's i mean she's 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 still incredibly prevalent i mean we're still talking about her right and you know, i she, look forward she, to she yeah, stays well, salient 
and like I, in six I, I, months she, when we're talking about 500 cases being moved i'll be like all right i'm gonna just you know uh, <laughs> sit back and enjoy it now Garrett, apparently oh man i'm gonna go buy the bottle now. you know who's dope them over there uh okay so we're gonna as we're getting towards the end of this episode we're gonna get to my favorite segment which is the dope follows this is where we tell you who you should be following it could be an instagram account um facebook group podcast book whatever you, whatever our guest and we think is cool this week so so eric i'm gonna throw it to you um who should people be checking out right now uh in your eyes well, um, you know, I had thought of a wine podcast, but then I didn't want to um, endorse your competitors. Right now. <laughs> oh, go for no, it. Go we, 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 we do it all the time. It. We encourage it. We really do. In fact, but, mine's uh, a podcast uh, today. So, uh, yeah. Black Guy Wine Podcast is yep. terrific. And, MJ's our uh, boy. He's, he's a former yeah. guest. We love okay, MJ. Okay, there you go. He's, um, his podcast is terrific. He has a lot of interesting guests and, and worth listening to. And uh, since I already um, uh, mentioned my love of Bob Dylan, I'm going to tell you my favorite Dylan podcast, Is It Rolling Bob?, um, which for all of your uh, Bob Dylan nerd needs is the place to go. That's amazing. That's great. I love that you picked that you picked MJ's podcast because yeah. it's one of my favorites too. And yeah, he was a guest late last year and he was awesome. He's so great. And we've stayed in contact since then. And I really, really appreciate the relationship that we've had. And I love listening to his show too. Like it's just, it's a really good listen. So I know we've told our listeners before, but definitely go check out, check out that. And then um, my buddy's a big Bob Dylan fan. So I'm going to make sure I relay that podcast to him as well uh chris who's your dope follow uh i'm gonna be a little pandering today and uh i'm gonna my follow is more of a suggestion and it's the uh, new york times cooking app uh it's uh filled with uh tons and tons of recipes and it's uh it's free if you're a new york times subscriber uh otherwise it costs like six bucks a month something like that it's totally worth it no matter what it is um and I got to tell you, my, my wife is one of those that hits me Sunday night or Saturday night while I'm like finally relaxing and sitting on the couch. She goes, okay, what are we eating for the week? And I have to like figure out everything <laughs> that we're doing. And I got to tell you, uh, I mean, we have countless books uh, in our house, which I, I love our cookbooks. Um, and, and we still use those as reference. But the, the New York Times um, uh, cooking app. It, like I can search for something really interesting or really specific or really general and I can save them. I can send her the recipes and she can, uh, she can do the shopping for it. And, uh, and we can actually have a really interesting, uh, simple and delicious week of meals without just eating the same grilled chicken and vegetables and, you know, the same stuff week in, week out. That just drives me nuts. Uh, my palate is extremely sophisticated and I don't know if you guys know this, but it's, uh, this is my moneymaker right here. Uh, and so it needs <laughs> oh to constantly gosh. be, uh, you know, uh, uh, entertained. I need, I need to never, never stop learning. Right. So, uh, uh, I get really bored really easily eating the same stuff week in, week out. Um, so having, having a tool like that at, at literally my fingertips, uh, is is priceless that's a good one i use it all the time do you yeah it's great i it do really seriously is. i mean we we also have uh, you know we have the new york times um 
cookbook, which is like this tome. It's like over a thousand pages and it's just, it, it's recipes from the beginning of time or beginning of times. So what is here on the phone? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it really is. Um, uh, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. And really fascinating, even just from an academic perspective. Um, but this, this is just really, it's really convenient, really easy. That's a good one. I like it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to revisit one. I think I've given before. Um, but one of my favorite, uh, podcasts is the sportful. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, it's really well done and they, they're always covering different, you know, food related stories and whatnot. And they just, their newest episode, and I actually had a different podcast I was going to recommend. And then this one popped up today. And if you guys remember, um, they launched their own pasta shape last year and documented the whole process. <laughs> and they just released a new episode regarding the impossible. And it is a gluten-free um, pasta in the same shape as the Cascatelli. So um, it's a really, really cool show. They, they cover um, um, a lot of just, you know, if you're interested in food at all, it's just, it's a really, it's a really great listen. And um, so, yeah, it's a sporkful. So yeah, so we, we we plug other podcasts all the time. You know, we're <laughs> there's there's more than enough of them out there. But uh, you know, I, I think those are I think those are some pretty dope follows. The music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by the Brothers Moore and produced pretty darn well by these two guys. And before we go kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five star review. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at the Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts. Mine is D Garrison Six. Chris is Kristen Flair. Eric, where can they find you? How can they reach you? You can find me at Eric Asimov on Twitter and on Instagram. Nice. You can also support the podcast by visiting our Etsy shop. Maybe get yourself a hundred percent free uh, celebrity shirt, or check out um, Anchor.fm/slash Good Bottle Podcast so we can go and get our subscription to the New York Times Food App. And if you would like for us to cover a story or if you are working on a brand that would like to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. You know, it's 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 nine in the morning and we didn't really talk about drinking too much or drink anything on this podcast. But usually we are drinking and we're drinking lots of good stuff. And you I, can I, go I actually to... haven't. I had, uh, I, I, uh, I had some rum chata in my <laughs> coffee this morning. Oh, there you go. So go to thegoodbottleshop.com and pick up some of those bottles there. Um, But until next time, we just want to say to you, cheers. Cheers, guys.